Welcome to the Abbott Loop Community Church Podcast. For more information about Abbott Loop, visit abbottloop.org. My name is Michael Rue, one of the pastors here, and it counted a privilege just to be able to be here and, and speak to you today. Uh, and so before I get into the message, I want to start with a verse, and it's a very well-known verse, and it's in Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. So if you have your Bible, or in paper form, or in digital form, whatever form you have it in, go ahead and click to that or flip to it. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, and it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In some of your ways, I'm sorry, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. We've been in this series called Let's Try It his way. And this has been, this was Josh's idea. You know, Josh is wanting us to go down this pathway of tasting and seeing that God is good. You know, and the Bible actually talks about this, says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in destruction. But there is also another pathway that is narrow that leads to life. And Josh is wanting us to try it his way and see what he can do as we try it his way. And he asked me to speak on this message on selflessness. So the title of this message today is The Power of Living Selflessly. The Power of Living Selflessly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your people. We thank you for your presence that empowers your people. We thank you, God, that your presence is the environment that causes us to change and be who you called us to be. And you beckon us by faith that yesterday is gone, today is a new day, and today is something that you made for us to discover by faith what you want us to be and do. God, I pray today that you would speak to us today, that you would speak to needs. Lord, if there's people that are hurting today, that you would bless them. Lord, that um, when, if they hear something, Lord, that you would touch them by your words. Lord, not by my words, but by your words today. If somebody's in a tough situation, God, that you would lift them up and give them faith to rise out of it. Lord, we thank you, God, for that you are faithful. Everybody said, amen. Well, I'd like to start off messages with a question. Uh, so I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been stuck uh, and so I'm going to talk about stuckness. Have you ever been stuck in a situation where you didn't know what to do, where to go, or what to decide? Where you didn't know what to do, where to go, or what to decide? I'm sure that's all of us in the room. We've all been there. Maybe you're there today. Um, I found a little anecdotal story uh, that kind of illustrates this whole idea. Take a listen. A doctor, a lawyer, and a little boy a little boy and a priest were out for a Sunday afternoon flight on a small plane. Suddenly, the plane developed engine trouble. In spite of the best efforts of the pilot, the plane started to go down. Finally, the pilot grabbed a parachute and yelled to the passengers that they better jump. And he himself bailed himself out. Unfortunately, there were only three parachutes remaining. The doctor grabbed one and said, I'm a doctor. I save lives, so I must go. So he jumped out. He must live. Then the lawyer said, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers are the smartest people in the world. I deserve to live. He also grabbed a parachute and jumped. The priest looked at the boy and said, my son, I have lived a long and full life. You are young and have your whole life ahead of you. Take the last parachute and live in peace. The little boy handed the parachute back to the priest and said, not to worry, father. The smartest man in the world just took off with my backpack. 
smarts, smarts, right? Mark 8, 35 says so appropriately according to this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. See, these characters in this fictional story were actually faced with a situation that was squeezing them in. And their resources were limited and they were having to make a decision. Maybe you've been in a situation or are in a situation like that where you're being squeezed spiritually. You're being squeezed relationally. You're being squeezed um, emotionally. You're being squeezed in some type of fashion, whether it's something, a choice that you've made or somebody, something's done to you or it's a circumstance that's around you and maybe you're in a situation like that right now. And maybe you're stuck and you're at work and you're facing a situation that is calling for your integrity to shine. Or maybe you're at home and you're facing a situation where your, te- your patience is being tested your kids or your parents, right? Or maybe you are in a situation where you're being tempted. You're just ready to check out. I'm going to go back to my old ways. This is not good enough for me. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do what feels good. Or maybe just the, the, the tide of your life has gone out and the boat of your life is beached up on the sand. And you're wondering, where do I go from here? Well, what's interesting about this is that these situations hold a common denominator where it could propel us in one of two directions. We could allow any situation that we might be in, whether it's difficult, and Jesus said difficult times. He said life will be hard. But he also, he said, I have overcome the world. And he says, and I'm thinking, will we allow our circumstance to propel us in one of two directions? And the common denominator is this is will we allow the situation of our life to propel us to a selfish life or more to a selfless life? And so God gives us the opportunity to move through our circumstance and what direction are we going to go? You know, we're talking about living a selfless life and I don't think I have to persuade anybody here that we live in a world that's marinated in selfishness. And self-preoccupation and self-promotion. Um, I was looking up just the word self-promotion, and I googled it. And you would be surprised to see how many articles there are about self-promotion. I just found three. There was many, but here's some titles. Self-promotion is a leadership skill, so you must get good at it. The art of self-promotion: six tips to get your work discovered. Okay. Forbes magazine, 40 ways to self-promote without being a jerk. Right? I don't think I have to persuade you that selfishness and self-promotion is pervading our culture. There was a survey that was put out to teenagers asking, what career do you want to go to most? And out of this survey, what do you think career they would want to go to? Anything? Gaming? Singer? 54% celebrity. I want to be a celebrity. I want to be a YouTube sensation. I want to be at home behind my screen and famous. Yes, that's what I want to be. They want to be the goat. The goat. Any of you young parents, like hip parents, know what that means? The greatest of all time. There we go. Was that you, Josh? (laughs) 
the greatest of all time. Yeah, we have people, that, that these teenagers, I want to be the greatest of all time. See, but here's the thing. We live in a, a craze of social media. And this self-promotion, selfishness is being fed by all of this social media. While there's a lot of great things about social media, it is feeding something. And it's actually changing the landscape, the emotional landscape and psych- psychological landscape of our children. So uh, I, read, I was reading this book by Craig Rochelle, uh, Hashtag Struggles. And he, he put this... Um, Interesting, hashtag struggles. And he was talking about, in the Michigan State University uh, gave a study, and they said they st- uh, did a study of college students from 1979 to 2009. And what they found in the 2009 students, they were measuring empathy. And what they found was the empathy levels for the 2009 students were 40% less than those of 1979. And what the researchers are arguing is that it's because of the rise in technology and the social media craze that's causing us to have less empathy levels. So what are we seeing as a result? We're seeing the exaltation of self, while at the same time we're seeing the the decline of selfless compassion for other people. So then we can just shoot up schools. We can just do whatever we want. Because I don't care. I don't have that feeling inside, right? But here's the problem with that. If we call ourselves a Jesus follower, Jesus' teaching is diametrically opposed to this. He says, if you are going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross. What does that mean? Die to your selfish nature and follow me. He says, if you want to become the greatest, you don't self-promote. No, you become the Leader, I mean, you become the servant. I think I'm leader. You become the servant. You don't become self-centered. What is he saying? You take on the nature of a servant. Like in Philippians 2, he talks about he took on the nature of a servant. What is he saying here? Serving is not something we do. Serving is something you and I are. So when we look at, if it's just something we do, then we can disconnect ourselves from any responsibility of it. But if it's something that we are, we are called to serve at the core of our being, that's who I am. That's who you are. When I look at our church, and I look at churches, or I look at the people of God, all of the people of God, imagine if all of us were serving somewhere in the church. Imagine it. Taking once a month, twice a month, somewhere, first impression, set up, tear down, in the media, in the back, getting trained, children's ministry. We have lots of great opportunities. Uh, we're going to be building an info team Lots of opportunities. Imagine if each one of us said, that's who I am. It's not what I do. I serve. And when you get into the community, when you go to coffee shops, having an effect on people, serving them by how you smile at them, how you engage with them, how you talk to people. So when we look at this, and and when we look at your stuck situation, if you're in a stuck situation, I want to ask you a question. Ask this of yourself. In your situation, Am I allowing this to drive me toward a selfish, self-promoting life or a selfless, powerful life? So the question is, if Jesus is calling us to this, how do we do this? How do we live a selfless life? Well, I only have two points for you today. And the first one is this. Start with his power. Start with his 
power. See, when we get into a certain situation, like that airplane going down, what happened? We start assessing things. We, we start scoping out our comfort. What's our, where's our comforts? We look at our limit. I'm getting squeezed in. What am I going to do? We start looking out for number one. We start, feel, we start assessing certain things. We start f- assessing our uh, emotional satisfaction. Oh, man, you know, I'm just going to have an emotional affair at work. It's okay. I, I deserve it. You know, my wife's being mean. You know, whatever. I'm just going to check out and have an emotional affair. It's okay. I'm not doing anything. Uh, you know, or physical satisfaction. We get squeezed into a situation that we don't know how to get out of. So we go towards more of a physical satisfaction. Take the next step, whatever it might be. We start assessing our abilities and our qualifications. We look at our enemies, who's, who's against us, or our perceived enemies. We start looking at all these things. And what happens is we let those feelings inform our decisions over time. And what happens is we kind of start going into this area, arena, of comparisons. And we embrace lies about ourselves and other people. And we say things like, well, I should have got that raise, not you. I deserve more. Well, nobody likes me. Uh, I just must not be valuable enough. We start looking and we let ourselves inform our decisions. What I'm saying is, yes, these feelings are real, but we, as his people, do not live by feelings. We will go over the edge by living with feelings. God's calling us to a higher standard in our lives. So I want you to take a look at this picture here that I have, picture of a beached boat, and one thing we know, it has a problem. It's stuck. Would you say that? What we know that's true about this situation is that it has a limitation. We know that it can't move. We also know what's true about this boat is that it's vulnerable. See, when we get stuck in a situation too long, we get vulnerable. We get vulnerable. But what's true about this is, what is it vulnerable? Oh, well, it's vulnerable to thieves stealing good parts off and selling it. Uh, Waves crashing in and busting it up. It might have a hole in it. Who knows? But what we don't say about this boat is, this boat is valueless. This boat will never sail again. This boat is beyond repair. It's unfixable, unusable. But when we get into a situation in our own lives, we begin saying that about ourselves. But our boat just might be beached. But what does this boat actually need in order to get to where it needs to go? It needs repair, for sure, if there's something wrong with it. We need, but it needs something outside of itself to fix it. Right? And it also needs one more thing. Somebody else said it? Water. It needs the environment in which it was designed to depend on and thrive in. You try to push that thing. We had some strong muscle men people here in the last service. And I said, could you push that? It's not a chance. Even if all of us were here, maybe we could move it a little bit. But if you get that in the right environment where it's depending on water, which it was designed for, a five-year-old in the, could push it and make it move. Because why? It's empowered in the right way. See, when you get in your life, and you're um, struggling and you're stuck and you're squeezed in, and what happens is we try to go in our own strength. And what do we do? We try to push the boat of our life on our own. And we get nowhere. We're like, why God? Why is nothing happening in my life? Because we're operating in our own strength. But when God empowers us and we depend on him, he's the water for our boat. We need to tap into his access and go, it's about you. It's not about 
me and what I can do to do it. Because guess what? If, if, if I could do it in my own strength, guess what? Nothing miraculous would ever happen. See, God gives us this verse in, what is it? Second Peter 1, 3. It says this. His divine power. It doesn't say our divine power, your divine. It says his divine power, something of another nature, not our nature, has granted to us all things that pertain to life. Everybody, can you take a breath with me? One, two, three. He just gave you that. Thank you, God. It wasn't super spiritual, but it was spiritual. Right? He gave you your friends, your clothes, your food, the people around it, the rest that you get come from him. He gave you everything for life and godliness. That thing on the inside, that when he places himself on you, inside of you, he makes you righteous. I, now, this is not a theological term, and I'm probably getting get in trouble by saying something like this, but I look at just righteousness as something that is like a pressure in our world, a pressure that affects the world in a new way. It's a distinction. It's a holiness that says, we're separate from the world, but man, there's something about you that I'd like. And some people might be turned off by it because you're, you're such a light in their lives, like, oh, and they're in the darkness. But that righteousness is something that distinguishes who we are. He's given you that opportunity. He's given you the ability to, that's the water of him that he wants to lift inside of your soul. So when I look at this, I look at the fact that I believe that God is calling a people. And that's like church words and everything. I'm just saying this is that God is wanting us to be aware of what he is doing. Just like that word today that came. He wants us to be aware of where he's going. He's wanting us to arise. Arise. And so if he's wanting us to arise together as a confident, unified people, why must we? The reason is because our times call for it. Our times are calling for it. You see, you've probably heard this, this word before for such a time as this. It comes from the book of Esther, the account of Esther, where she was an ordinary Jew and gets put in this place where she gets squeezed and it came out of nowhere. And what is she, and the point was, what was she going to do? Her life was getting squeezed. So the first point of how to live selflessly is start with his power. The second point is this. See his purpose through your problem. See his purpose through your problem. Now, what I want you to do is I want to take a profile of Esther, kind of give you some background information about Esther, and take her as a template and apply it to our lives. See, Esther was this ordinary Jew, just whatever. And uh, didn't really, nobody really knew her, but here's the deal. She was actually cousins with Mordecai, and Mordecai became her surrogate parent because her parents had passed away. So here they're cousins. He's taking care of her. At that time, King Xerxes was, was the king of Susa. It's a province there. And he had just deposed of the queen because she didn't come to a banquet that he had asked her to come to. So, fired. Scary guy. So what did he do? He issues a call to all the province of Susa and says, all these, has all these women come and he vets all these women, goes through a big vetting process to get these women and guess who rises to the top? Esther. Esther gets into this place and so she's plucked from one environment and moved into another environment by God's hand. And then Mordecai, when, he, when she went in there, Mordecai warns her, he says, 
Do not reveal your identity that you are a Jew. At that same time, Mordecai became a palace official. And so he wasn't like high up and important, but he was there. He was, he was around. And there was this other guy named Haman. And Haman was a wicked official. He was high up next to Xerxes. But all he cared about was himself. He cared about his power, what he could get out of it. He didn't care about the king. He wanted his own self-glory. And so what happened as a result of that? So it started coming out in situations. So when Haman would walk by the other palace officials, they were supposed to bow down. And he, Mordecai, while everybody else was bowing down, did not bow down. And it happened many times. Did not bow down. There's going to be a time in our lives you're going to be asked to bow down when we shouldn't. It's already happening. The bakers, down in Oregon, different things. But you're going to, we're going to be told, called to stand up like Mordecai did. But he didn't bow down. It ticked Haman off. Oh, big time. And he, he was like, I'm going to kill him. Really, kill him. But he found out that he was a Jew. So he goes, no, I'm going to kill his people. So he's using his authority, and he goes to Xerxes and says, hey, there's a people in the land. He didn't reveal the identity of the people. There's a people in the land that, want, that are not uh, following the laws of the land. And uh, he, they're not following the laws of the land. And guess what? They, uh, they, uh, they're disobeying. They're living the way. That, yet I want to kill them. Can I kill them? He basically gets permission to kill all these people. Okay. So guess what happens? Mordecai finds out about this because the issue, the decree goes out to all the Jews. And what does Mordecai do? He tears his clothes and wails and grieves for a long time by at the edge of the town. So here he goes. He's wailing and he's grieving. And Esther finds out about it. Esther hears about this. She sends a messenger going, what's going on? And then he sends a message back with the decree of what's happening. And right when she finds out that her people were going to get hurt, it says she was distressed. She got squeezed into a place. What was she going to do? Also, in that letter, he said this, please plead to the king for mercy for your people. And this is where the story picks up, where we see Esther and how she responds to this situation. When we look at Esther 4, verses 11, he sends information back, and this is where we see how she views her stuck situation. She says, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So here she sees, she goes, I'm stuck. I can't do anything. So what is going off in her mind? She has all the comforts in the world. She has all the lotions and the creams, and she has all the stuff, and she has all the, she's probably eating on her side with grapes and enjoying just the baths and everything. And now, guess what's being threatened? Her comfort. Her comfort's being threatened. And she goes, I'm going to die. This is the rules. And so, what does her wonderful friend and cousin Mordecai say? Does he go soft on her? Well, let's see. Mordecai sends a letter back and replies, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Thank you, cousin. 
Who knows if perhaps you were made for such a time as this? What, what does he say? He's saying, you know what? If you, whether you stand up or not, deliverance is going to come, but you're not going to experience it. He went totally hardball, and he goes, you're going to die. You know what? We need friends like that. Friend, uh, yeah, it's hard to hear that kind of stuff, but guess what? We need people that will look us in the eye, lovingly tell us the truth, because when we have a God vision that we understand how God is, we don't rip people apart, but we tell them the truth in a, great, in a good environment. And guess what? Because why? God is the one who holds us together. And so he even ups the ante. He even illuminates her possible heavenly obligation. He says, perhaps you've been put in this place for such a time as this. What is he saying? He's saying, you've been plucked from an area of influence. Your influence sphere has grew massively. And he's asking, how are you going to respond in this time? How are you going to use your influence? Are you going to use it for yourself? Or are you going to realize that this is your divine destiny? This is the beginning of a transformation for her. He's saying, your life is not your own. He's saying, are you going to arise? Are you going to arise out of your self-preoccupation, your self-protection? You were promoted. Your self-promote. She didn't self-promote, but basically she was promoted into a place. Are you going to rise out of that and arise into the fact that God is calling you? He's calling your name to make a difference and allow yourself to be the means to an end. See, we like to say, i got to find my purpose. What's my purpose? You know what your purpose is? Is that you are the means to the end of that purpose. That there's something inside of us that needs to change. That it's not something really outside of us that just comes to us. He's saying, don't you see the problem? Don't you see? And here's the thing. If she responds to move from selfishness to selflessness, she gives God the full reign to usher in his power only what he can do, and prosperity and salvation to a whole land. But if she doesn't, nobody will be helped. But she gets to have her palace perks over time. So God is calling us to a place to understand that. How does she respond? Let's look at how she actually gets to a place to respond. Thank God for Mordecai. We all need a Mordecai in our lives. Esther 4, verses 15 and 16. Then Esther told them, this is her response to, re, uh, to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman, women will also fast as you do. I'm going to pause right there. What is she doing? Something is changing inside of her. Something is going on here like I got to think outside myself. And she's going back to point number one here, starting with God's power. She's going, I need to get God's power. I can't go through this by myself. I need to fast and to pray for three days. But I'm not going to do it by myself. I'm going to do it with a people, my people. Because this is going to happen based on what God can do with his people. And I want God's people to see what he can do. So she's starting with God's power and is moving into a place of dependence. Look at how she responds. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, here it is. And if I perish, I perish. She is changing. 
She realizes the vision. She realizes the call. You see, what she's seeing here is she's seeing a different vision. She's seeing that her position, if she so chooses to allow it, will intersect with God's purpose. But she has to be the means to the end. God always calls us to be the means to the end. It's not somebody else's fault. God's calling me to something. God's calling you to something. God wants to bring in a harvest. And God-sized visions require something for them to be released. It requires a death. We, uh, our logo actually has this, this wheat. And this verse that Jesus says is, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings up a whole harvest, a brand new thing, many things. It raises up. See, she was becoming that seed. And she had to decide, am I going to die or not? Am I going to allow myself to die or not? She's seeing something. Something is changing her. She's seeing that her cross, her stuckness, that God calls us to carry, is becoming her crossroads of decision. Because she sees a worldly riptide that's going to decimate her people. And now, it's on her to receive that call and do it. She is learning to do it his way. And also what she's seeing is that she is choosing to allow a different environment for her people by sacrificing her environment. And she, why? Because what's changing in her mind? She's seeing that her people deserve more. Her people deserve more. People in Anchorage deserve more from us. A lot of them are walking around like zombies. They don't even know it. They're just living for themselves and they just don't even know it. Why? Because sin is sin. There's no condemnation there. They just, we go out, we're going to be a light to them. They are worth more than what they're experiencing now. And it's time for us to rise up and to be a part of them, of their lives. So what does she do? She picks up her cross and goes to the king. And what does she do? Trembling. He doesn't kill her. He extends her, his scepter. He goes, what is your request? I'll give you half the kingdom. He says, come to a banquet. He comes to the banquet. He says, what do you want? He goes, come to a second banquet. Okay, he went to the second banquet. What do you want? Then he, she lets it, ha- lets, lets it out of the bag. Esther 7, verses 7 through 3. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For the people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had been merely sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial of a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked man, Haman, ah, is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace and garden. Haman was killed on a gala that was meant for Mordecai. This was the beginning of a tide change. And how does this change um, ripple through? It ripples through the whole culture. It's a domino effect. Look at what happened as a result of her boldness. Esther 8, 11 and 12. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them and their children and wives and to the property of their enemies. The day 
chosen for this event through the province of, uh, provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th. This is the NLT version, giving us that version of the next year. See, Haman had intended for the people to die on that day. But you see, what happens is when we step out selflessly according to his purpose and it intersects with his plan, God's timing is always perfect. God sees us through our circumstance and he will carry you. But we have to step out selflessly. Let God heal our boats. Depend on him to bring you to a place of health and he will lift you up. His timing is always perfect. It goes on in Mark, in, in Esther 9, 1 and 2. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, here's the tide change. The enemies of the Jews had hoped um, to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities through all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them, but no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. Before they were nothing. But now everybody's afraid of the Jews. God is our protector. God stood up for them, but he used a person. He always uses a person. And she had to become the means to the end for that to actually happen. And Mordecai was the one that was even further behind the whole process. So it brought a change into the culture. Her response to carry her cross ushered in the king of all kings. She did it his way. She learned that it wasn't about her. He, Jesus, is the one that lifts all the boats in the harbor. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to lift our boat, to heal us, to bring us to, guess what? It spills out into everybody else's world. You see, but when I rely on my power, I can do great things and be nice to people and give money and do all these different things, but it doesn't give an eternal difference. Because I get the glory over time. But when I'm depending on him to come through, guess what happens? Something different happens. We go to the same coffee shop every day, my wife and I. And we are trusting people. We're developing relationships with these people. There's this one gal, her name is Izzy. She's living with her boyfriend and she's going to be moving to Arizona. But I know that she's watching us. And Rachel's going to give her some information and give her a nice book because we, we developed this relationship with her. I believe God is on her trail. It's, it's really, really exciting. See, Jesus wants to lift the boat of your life and the lives of those around you. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, we see what Jesus prayed. One of his last prayers before he went to the cross. I am, oh, I am praying not only for the, the, these disciples, the ones he had, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. He's looking out. He's casting vision. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the whole so that the world will believe you sent me. Three years ago, a book salesman comes to our door. Her name was Ellie from Estonia. I have a picture of her, I think. This is Ellie. She showed up at our door. Hey, did, it, did anybody, she went to many people. Did she come to your house? Yeah, a couple of you? Okay, great. You were probably planting seeds in her life. There, Nancy. She comes to our door, and she 
uh, Rachel goes to the door, and we usually say, no, no thanks, and we just kind of go, we were watching TV. Rachel goes out, and she was out there for a while. I was like, boy, she's out there watching. Was she buying the book? <laughs> and she, Rachel pops her head in there. She goes, hey, Mike, can you come out here? I think you need to come out here. I said, okay. I come out here, and I visibly see that she's trying to get through her sales pitch. Rachel had been talking to her a little bit and just loving on her. She's visibly flustered. Her eyes are watering. Her face is flush. And she finally just goes, okay, uh, forget it. I got to stop here. Um, the last three houses that I've been, was at, their names are Faith, Hope, and Love. And now I'm at a pastor's house. And since I've been in Anchorage, I felt like somebody has been trying to get a hold of me. And I don't know who he is. She's, she's dumbfounded. She's, the presence of God was just debilitating her. <laughs> Breaking her down. It was so neat. And so we're there and we're like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I've never seen such low-hanging fruit. I'm like, this is easy, God. Somebody was doing the planting and the watering and all that kind of stuff. And man, this is fun to just pick the fruit. I know it doesn't happen every time, but man, this is great. You're making this easy. So she's crying and everything. We explain to her that it's Jesus who loves her and is come, is is messing with you, <laughs> is you know knocking on your door. <laughs> and so I, I explain the whole thing about sin and that separates us from God and that God loves her and. I said, it's a gift that you receive. And you repent of your sin. And she goes, well, how do I receive a gift? So she starts going like, she puts her hands out. She, this is so, I mean, so beginner. And it was so amazing. It was so cool and raw and open. How do I receive this? She puts her hand out like this. And, I, and, and then we were going to get, I said, well, you just receive him into her. You ask him. You, and then uh, we talked about um, sin and all this kind of stuff. And then we're going to pray. And then she, we, she goes, well, how do I pray? How do I, do I go like this or like this? You know, she didn't do that. I'm making that up. But she's like trying to figure this whole thing out. And so we just prayed for her and she re received Jesus right there on the spot. Said I wasn't going to cry in this one. <clears throat> the cool thing about this is that See, Rachel did all the heavy lifting on this one. This is her credit to her. What we became what happened was we decided to give her a Bible, but we didn't have a Bible. So we said, come back. We'll have it on our doorstep. Just, we'll give you some next steps materials. Da, 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 da. And she came back and got the Bible. And then we became Facebook friends and everything. <clears throat> and then she basically took that and went. One year later, she posts on Facebook a picture of a Bible verse and tags Rachel. She didn't even tag me. She tagged Rachel. It was cool. You know who made the difference here. And she said, this is so comforting to me. Thank you. One year, another year later at the anniversary, she does it again. This is fruit that is remaining. What is it worth to you? What is it worth to me to lay our lives down 
so that you and I can see God bring a harvest that he wants to do because it's all about him. And when I come to a place of going, you know, it's not about me. It's about you, Father. Help me to follow you. Let me be a means to the end, even if it means pain. You see, here's the thing. Jesus said he has overcome the world. But he also said uh, life won't be easy. You will have trials, but I have overcome. But during that trial, when you get squeezed, remember, I have overcome the world. And I will come through you. And I will work through you. So where are you at today? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at abbotloop.org and like us on Facebook. Services in Anchorage, Alaska are at 9 and 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon.